It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, there was plenty of speculation in advance of Saturday night about just what we would see from Adrian Bronner. And on one level, he did not disappoint us, while also simultaneously managing to greatly disappoint us. Yes, what I'm particularly referring to is the fact that two years removed from casually insulting Al Bernstein during a pre-fight press conference, he casually insulted Steve Farford in a post-fight interview. You have to be a pretty unique individual to be able to pick fights with two of the gentlest men in boxing, but there you go. Uh, but it kind of does make you wonder who at Showtime is next. Um, could it be renowned rabble-rouser Barry Tompkins? The perennially <laughs> unpleasant Gordon Hall? <laughs> us? Yeah, it could be us. And we'd probably deserve it. Um, <laughs> Doris, who makes the sandwiches at the CBS canteen? Mm, Doris. Ah, yes. It could actually be Doris. I think it could be Doris. Any, any other nominations? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody is safe from Adrian Broner's wrath. That is clear. If, <laughs> if you know, it's Al Bernstein and Steve Farrett are probably the two least hated people in the entire boxing industry <laughs> it's almost impossible to find anyone who will say a bad word about either of those guys and broner's yeah. picked fights with both of them so yeah unique that's a that's a good word for for broner that that describes him uh as for who he's going after next at showtime it's easy it's me after he hears what I'm planning to say about him on this week's podcast. How's that for a tease? I, I can't compete nice. with your segueing skills, uh, Kieran, but I, I'm strong with the tease. Nice. I like that. I like that. So that's something that we have to look forward to on the podcast is is Eric getting himself firmly in the sights of Adrian Bronner. Um, what, uh, we've also got quite a lot uh, else ahead of us. We're going to look at what was touted in advance as a potential fight of the year, but turned into an ass whooping punctuated by a strong candidate for knockout of the year as Oscar Valdez took it to Miguel Birch Pelt before knocking him cold on Saturday night. Uh, we look ahead to Canelo's defense of his super middleweight title against Abney Yildirim. Eric offers up his suggestion for Tweet of the Week and his list of five of the biggest upsets, non-Douglas Tyson division, that took place in foreign land. But first, let's begin with a recap of this week's Showtime fights. Coming up, a look at Wednesday's Showbox card, but we begin with Showtime Championship Boxing, headlined by the aforementioned... Ugh. Adrian Bronner. <laughs> ah, yes. Good old AB. Uh, about billions or always ballin' or about business, according to him, could also stand for average, basically, after his yeah. performance Saturday night at the Fight Sphere at Mohegan Sun, in which they tried to give Broner a safe opponent in his first fight back after a two-year layoff, but he ended up needing some friendly judging to get the win over Giovanni Santiago. Steve Farhood had it 114-113 Santiago. Hence, Broner's attacks of Steve that involved F-bombs. Uh, and I had the exact same score uh, with Broner rallying in the second half of the fight, but coming up just short. However, the official judges were more impressed by AB. Glenn Feldman had it 115-112. Tom Carasone, who we ripped last summer for his awful scorecard in the George Escudero rematch, 
had it 116-111 for Broner, and Peter Harry somehow had it 117-110. According to CompuBox, Santiago outlanded Broner 207 punches to 98 punches, and there wasn't a single round among the 12 in which Broner landed more shots than his opponent. Santiago did lose a point in round four for hitting long after the bell, which I thought was a correct call from referee Arthur Mercani Jr. Oh, and and by the way, I haven't mentioned yet that the fight was contracted for 140 pounds and then magically became a 147-pound fight. Kieran, we were suckers to believe for even a moment that this might be a new and improved and more dedicated Broner. It was the same old Broner, not making the originally agreed upon weight, not throwing enough punches, and not good enough to beat an unproven opponent, at least according to my scorecard. How did you score it, Kieran? And can we at least say Santiago was better than most people expected? Or was this all about Broner's ever-increasing mediocrity? Yeah, if there's anything Bronner's getting better at, it's being mediocre. Um, <laughs> I uh, I had it the same score as you and Steve. I had a couple of different rounds differently from Steve. I gave around seven to Bronner and ten to Sagi Santiago, mm-hmm. but otherwise I had it the same as him for one fourteen, one thirteen. When it's that close, the Bronner win is inevitable. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure you and I both knew it as soon as we had fourteen, thirteen cards. We knew what was coming. That said. Um, it wouldn't have been an outrage if Glenn Feldman's card had been the widest right. uh, at all. I can see 15-12. Uh, 117-110 feels as if it was filled out in the parking lot pre-fight. <laughs> and 16-11 isn't much better. I know that Bronner lands, when he does land, he lands these very sharp, clear, hard punches and that they catch the eye of judges. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure that was the issue here. But still, 17-10, uh, 16-11, that, that's hard. That's hard to see. I, I mean, he got quite outworked, I thought, there. Um, I, I don't think this was a case necessarily of Santiago being that much better than expected. He might have been a lot better than maybe people who were just tuning into the fight just to see Adrian Broner thought he was going to be. But you and I talked about this last week. We both mentioned that the dude can fight. Yep. Um, he isn't world class, but he can fight. And we noted that he's shown an ability particularly uh, to be quite effective against opponents with who, with low punch output, uh, which is exactly what we had. Um, he's not world-class, like I said, by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a serviceable pro, and he at least put forth a legitimate and decent effort, which is more than could be said for his opponent. Um, look, uh, Bronner certainly did warm up over the second half of the fight, like you said. Um, his power punch accuracy is still strong, and those power punches do carry some heft, but... Yeah, like you said, there was nothing new Bronner about this. It had all the ingredients of late classic Bronner, yeah. uh, as you said. The promise to be lean and mean, followed by the shifting of the weight limit. Um, the promise to be dedicated and exciting, followed by the standard diffident performance in the ring, followed by the braggadocio <laughs> afterward, you know. Right. It was interesting. I, I actually thought at the start of his interview with Brian Custer... Even he seemed atypically uncomfortable with his performance, right? He was talking about, oh, I need to go and watch it and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then he sort of got into his stride, remembered who he was, and then he just shifted seamlessly to this ongoing entitled victim act. Showtime and Al Payman don't give me enough fights. They would only keep me busy. I wouldn't have to be in court all the time. (laughs) Um, It's Steven Espinosa's fault that the guy's up up before, you know, the judge all the time. Um, Who knew? (sighs) Look, I, I don't know. Look. You want to be a professional boxer, you got to make sacrifices. you got to start looking inward. He's making all the right noises beforehand. But at the end of the day, he was back to the excuses. And, and the thing with Broner is each time 
in isolation, you can look at the excuses and go, oh, okay, that's legitimate. He couldn't make 140. Well, okay, you know what? It was an achievement even to get down to 146 when he started training camp at 180 and he hadn't fought for two years. All right. It didn't look really good, especially beginning at the beginning of the fight. Well, it was his first fight in two years. He was a bit rusty, etc., etc., etc. The whole deal with boxing and Adrian Bronner is it kind of has the classic hallmarks of an abusive relationship, right? Every time one partner points to the abusive or, you know, or appalling or unsatisfactory things that the other one's done, then the other one starts coming up with the relationships until the other person in the relationship is gaslighted and, and starts to believe, oh, well, you know what? You're right. I'm so sorry for all the bad things that you've done. Um, whose fault is it that Bronner can't make the effort to excel? Steven Espinosa's, Al Heyman's, it's certainly not Adrian Bronner's. Right. Um, so I don't know. Look, where do you think Bronner goes from here? Uh, as we mentioned, there was talk of this being the get well fight. I mean, this was a setup. This wasn't even meant to be a challenging fight. Right. This was the gimme. We'll put this guy on the tee for you here. And then when, when you take care of that, then we can start giving you the other fights. But he couldn't even handle that. So if this is as good as he can do, if he can't even make 140 pounds... Should that plan be aborted? You know, should we still be looking at further Adrian Broner fights uh, over the rest of the year? Uh, I, I hope not. I hope that the, the plan is aborted. I, I really do. Uh, I hope Steven Espinoza, who we know has a soft spot for Broner or maybe just likes the ratings that Broner attracts uh, <laughs> and that translates into the appearance of a soft spot. I hope Steven changes his mind and changes the plan and throws in the towel on Adrian Broner. Look, we'll see what the ratings for this fight were like. Uh, the main event started midway through the main event on ESPN, Valdez and Burchelt. I don't know if that will hurt Broner's ratings. Mm. If not, if he still rated well, maybe Steven will be encouraged to carry his next fight. Mm. But I would like to see Showtime be done with Broner. If the network is not done with him, if his next fight is on Showtime, we'll, of course, cover it. Uh, I just prefer not to have to. Um, he, he just isn't a world-class fighter anymore. Correct. Uh, look, Santiago, we, we said last week, this guy isn't bad. Still, no other welterweight or junior welterweight who gets paid half as well as Broner does yep. would fail to beat Santiago decisively. Um, nothing against Santiago, but if you can't beat Giovanni Santiago, and I don't feel Broner beat him, you're not a top fighter. Uh, I, I really feel stupid for believing, based on a social media <laughs> post about quitting alcohol, that Broner was maybe growing up a little. Uh, once they changed the weight limit in the middle of the week, that was that. I knew better. Um, yeah. And look, his frame just looks thicker at this age. He probably mm -hmm. can't make 140 anymore, right. no matter how he trains. But that's all the more reason to believe he doesn't have any good wins left in him. You know, at, at 140, maybe there's hope that he could be better if he could make 140. At 147, he's not that good. He, he, he might not be among the 25 best fighters in that yeah. division. Uh, he landed zero punches in the first round, according to CompuBox, and two judges gave him the round. That is just <laughs> wow. a remarkable stat. Uh, look, it wasn't a terrible fight. I was fairly entertained in that there was the drama of an upset brewing for the first six or seven rounds, followed by the drama of Broner staging a comeback. So it's not that this fight alone was a complete dud. It's just I I've seen enough. I'm fresh out of second chances. I hope Steven Espinoza is out of them also. You know, it's interesting. I actually made a little note with a question mark. Is he even top 20? 
in 140 or 147 right now and it's a question mark and i like i'm sure you can make a case for him but it's not a given is it right um yeah look he's not showtime championship boxing headliner material anymore uh for all the reasons that you just said um on performance levels alone and the caliber of opponent he's able to beat. there's one exception right that i will make to all of this which is um there is a role for him on showtime or on a similar network and that is as the big name measuring stick feed him to Jerron ennis at 147 or mm. mario barrios at 140 they both beat the shit out of him yeah but they get an enormous boost um in terms of awareness and popularity and Bronis still has enough dangerous tricks in him that you know maybe they'll still they'll learn a couple of things you know while while fighting him um they'll know also what it's like to go up against a, a sort of big time guy who's going to really try to get under their skin during the build up, that kind of stuff. It would be a useful exercise for Jerron Ennis or, or, or Bar Mario Barrios or somebody of that ilk to fight Adrian Bronner. That's the role for him. If he wants to get those Showtime Championship boxing uh, slots and that money, then I would want to see him do something that contributes to boxing. And helping those guys who have real potential and I think are going to be superstars get attention. Um, that's the role. That's the only role that I can really feel that could justify him getting these positions. Otherwise, he's a freaking showbox fighter right now, to be yeah. perfectly honest. Yeah, and I would say, I don't know, I, you, I, I cringed a little bit when you said the name Jerron, and it's that's just such a wipeout. I don't even think I, I, I want to see it, even though you're right, it serves some purpose for, for Ennis. Uh, you know, Barrios, okay, maybe. He's more like a very good prospect, not mm -hmm. a off-the-charts, uh, future pound-for-pound right. -pound top guy type of prospect. So, so you know, Barrios Broner is maybe competitive enough that it makes a little sense, but... Uh, you're you're right. The, that those are the sort of opportunities that make some sense for him. I would also be perfectly fine with him not getting any opportunities at all. Indeed. Uh, look, I think we will have nicer things to say though about the winner of the co-feature. There were two other fights on the card. Uh, that co-feature was um, uh, a fight in two parts, really, uh, between former heavyweight title challenges. Uh, Otto Valin absolutely dominating the first eight rounds against Dominic Brazil to the point. That a stoppage seemed warranted to most of Twitter and to us, certainly to me, and not just because I paid to stoppage. <laughs> um, but then Brazil showed a ton of heart uh, uh, and came back over the final four rounds of the fight and took, I think, some of the shine off of Valin's performance. Still, uh, uh, Valin won clearly. Mm -hmm. Judges had it 116-112, uh, 117-111, 118-110. That raises his record to 22-1 and one with 14 KOs. Uh, and, and he remains a serious heavyweight contender while... Brazil fell to 20 and 3. I also scored at 116, 112. I had Valine winning everything through eight. And then I just thought Brazil outworked him, even though I never thought that Brazil was going to turn it around. I felt that he was clearly outworking him down the stretch. Uh, how did you have it? Um, does this ultimately raise Valine's stock? Uh, and did Brazil's late rally sort of earn him another opportunity? So no surprise to anyone, I had the exact same scorecard round by round as you did. Um, oh, yeah, I, I I had Brazil sweeping those last four rounds after Valine swept the first eight, so I also had it 116-112, but that's as close as you could have it. The, the first eight were yep. clear cut, and one or two of those last four were close and could have gone Valine's way. But yeah. what a fascinating fight. Uh, around the seventh or eighth round, I'm tweeting back and forth with Lou DiBella about whether Abel Sanchez should throw in the towel and whether Brazil should retire. And in the last two or three rounds, I know you just said uh, you weren't all that nervous about him actually pulling off the comeback. 
I was half expecting a, a tiring Valin to, to get knocked out. Uh, now, I, I had a bet uh, on Valin, uh, so maybe that was the thing. I was just nervous and sweating it a bit down the stretch. But, um, man, Valin looked so good the first eight rounds. Uh, he's such a skilled boxer, especially against a really slow heavyweight. Um, I was prepared to declare him a favorite against anyone but Fury and Joshua. But then he looked so vulnerable late and was just looking to survive. And that is the right strategy at that point. But still, I'd say his stock either stayed exactly the same or went up by the tiniest little amount when it was all said and done. Um, I'd be fascinated to see him against Wilder or Usyk or Luis Ortiz. Mm -hmm. None of those are are easy fights to, to call one way or the other. Um, yeah, he, he's in line for, for more big fights, but, uh, I think his stock pretty much moved laterally with this and we'll need to see him against that sort of opponent to, to find out whether he can take another step up to that next level. Uh, as for Brazil, man, he took a lot of punishment. I wouldn't be sad if he decided to call it a career, but the way he rallied, if he wants to fight on, he absolutely earned the right to face another contender. His right eye was a mess. Uh, winning seemed a futile pursuit, and he kept coming and kept looking for the knockout and just showed a ridiculous heart. And look, he, he has some thinking to do. But if he chooses to fight on, he has absolutely earned another decent payday, in my view. It was an inspiring performance, honestly. So, you know, could be a great note to go out on, uh, but that, that's up to him. Yeah, look, I, uh, Valin after 12 rounds is in a slightly less strong position than he was after eight, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he did let the guy off the hook. Um, he did have him ready to go. Look, Brazil's body language at round seven, eight was so bad. His offense was just awful. It was off balance. He looked like he didn't want to be there. His yeah. eye was closing shut. It felt as if Valin could have forced uh, a, a stoppage but you know full credit to, to brazil's corner for actually managing to keep that eye open it looked like it was going to swell shut um so valine loses a little something for letting him go the distance uh but at the same time he does have this kind of uh unique presence in the sort of chasing pack mm-hmm. in that top 10 right now he's a big guy with some pop but mostly with good footwork and boxing skills uh, i think it's a handful for a lot of folks uh i you mentioned Luis Ortiz. i also would not mind that fight I, I think him against Luis Ortiz would be very interesting and would give us a very good idea of, of where he's where he is. Uh, or maybe, you know, we saw Derek Chisora recently go up against a, another, you know, skillful mover in the heavyweight division who is smaller than Valine. Maybe, you know, a Derek Chisora fight would be interesting for him. Mm-hmm. You feel that at the end of the day, at the very top level, that lack of power that I think he has will stop him maybe getting to the very top, but he's a tough out for anybody, Valine, um, and, and he's skillful. Uh, and as for Brazil, yeah, look, I was like mentally writing his retirement announcement in round seven or eight. It was, yeah. honestly, it was, it was, it felt bad. Like mm-hmm. it felt as if we were seeing a career unraveling before our eyes. It was just tremendously sad. And I, I was just making this note to myself, it's just what a brutal business this is and how my goodness it will expose you in the worst possible way but 
like you said, full credit to him for sucking it up and fighting back. Where does he go from here? I, I don't know. I, you mentioned the punishment he, he took, and that's just his style too, right? He just doesn't have a defense. He, he's just right. not interested in it. Um, and that means he's taken a lot of punishment already, and that's not going to change. And he's only going to take more punishment as he gets older and slower. That's just the way of things. I love for him to retire um but if he doesn't then i think he's really gatekeeper now yeah uh you can't i can't see him fight for a a, a major title or anything like that unless he pulls off an incredible shock when he's facing like an up-and-coming kind of guy um yeah he's going to be that kind of measuring stick kind of guy that i think adrian bronner should be in -hmm. his division now that's where he's at i would not be unhappy to see him walk away because of the nature of his style and the amount of punishment that he's taken but yeah nonetheless he deserves a lot of credit for the way he finished that fight and i also wanted to say a quick word about the corners i mean we already know how good abel sanchez is and there were times like you were saying when you and lou were texting back both. I definitely thought there were times where I was surprised, like, Abel, why aren't you telling the guy you're going to think about pulling him out? But I guess he was telling him exactly what he needed to hear to try to get what he could get out of him. And in the end, you know, that, that worked out. But I was super impressed with Joey Gamash. For, yeah. I, I don't recall ever paying much heed to his instructions before. Obviously, we've seen Valin, you know, a few times now. But I really liked how calm and matter-of-fact and non-stressed um he was at all times clearly valin responds very well to him the two clearly have some kind of chemistry together uh i'm not sure who else he trains joey gamash but he's got quite a future as a trainer i think i I was very impressed with what i heard from him in the corner yeah paramount plus and the national park foundation present a mountain of zen are you still listening good take a deep breath You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount+. Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount+, Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. On May 23rd... I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. All right, we can breeze through the opening bout on the card more quickly. Uh, There isn't as much to talk about here. It went pretty much according to the script we both laid out last week as Robert Easter Jr. outboxed and outpointed Ryan Martin. Scores were 117-111 and 118-110 twice. Easter boxed well behind the jab, looked good in his second fight at 140 pounds, but he was aided by Martin mostly making it easy for him. Apparently lacking the fire and desire to get over the hump against world-class opposition. I was disappointed in, in Martin. Clearly he is not blue chip as his nickname suggests. Yep. He falls to 24 and two and Easter did what he had to, as he moved to 23, one and one Kieran thoughts on the fight and thoughts on whether Easter can make some noise at 140. It was not a good fight. Um, it wasn't an awful fight, but it wasn't a, 
good fight. Um, you know, when you're an old fart like you and me setting down at 9 p.m. and hoping we can make it past midnight when that's the opening bow, I yeah. wasn't. I thought, oh, this is going to be a rough evening. But um, not not because necessarily there weren't skills at play, but there certainly were. It, it just, you know, it, it, it got stuck in second gear of that and never moved past it. Um, Easter just doesn't seem to make good fights anymore. Um, and Martin clearly doesn't have the big fight mentality. Uh, he's been on that main stage twice now, and he's come away from bouts with Easter and Josh Taylor with, what, two rounds total? Right. <laughs> um, he just didn't seem to have any answers. You know, even when his corner was basically saying, you know, like they'd gone over the game plan, he knew what he had to do, he just wasn't doing it. And they were just basically, when you've got your corner just saying, dude, are you going to fight or what? Um, that's, I just think that's just a, a hang up that he might have. He's just, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a shame, but it's a very tough business. It will find you out and expose you. Martin looks like he's destined to be a B, B minus level fighter. And there's no shame in that. That's a good career he's got ahead of him potentially, but any kind of world title is appears to be far beyond him. He just doesn't seem to have what it takes, you know, to, to, to force himself over the hump there. Like you said, um, Easter is Easter. He's technically very solid. He's very sound. He'll continue to be in and around the top of the division, but I don't know how easy it will be for him to get big fights because he's a bit of a high-risk, low-reward opponent at this point. Um, you know, he's very skilled, so he's going to be a tough out, but he's like low-reward in that it's not going to be an exciting fight probably, and and what is Robert East beating Robert Easter going to do for you if you're a title holder? Um, from a broadcaster's point of view, he is the kind of fighter who is going to send viewers to the refrigerator or have them checking out what's on the other side, uh, on the other network. Um, he does have skills. Again, he'll have a very fine career, but I just don't think he's at the level of a Taylor or a Progray or someone like that personally. Yeah, he needs to be in there with a guy who's going to really take it to him and force the fight. Yeah. And then it can be more entertaining and competitive. But yeah, Ryan Martin, it seems it's a more a mental thing than a physical thing. He's just not that guy. Uh, all right. Earlier in the week on Wednesday night, we were treated to a hump day showbox triple header headlined by a fight Kieran and I were extremely psyched for. Uh, maybe we overhyped it slightly from an action perspective, but it was a good fight and a close fight with the one and only Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica prevailing by majority <laughs> decision over Mark Reyes Jr. after 10 rounds of welterweight action. It was a good fight if you had no expectations, so I somewhat regret guaranteeing a war and a knockout finish because that maybe dampened my enthusiasm slightly while watching uh, that and the fact that I picked Reyes to win, whereas you had Boca Chica, Kieran. Uh, but it was a damn close fight. Uh, the CompuBox stats suggest it couldn't possibly have been closer, as both fighters threw 579 punches, exactly the same count, and Reyes landed 158 of his, while Boca Chica landed 156. Uh, it was a tough fight to score. The judges agreed on just four of the ten rounds. And in the end, Dontrella had it even, 95-95. Steve Weisfeld had it 96-94, Boca Chica. And Don Ackerman <laughs> went 97-93, Boca Chica. I had the same score as Trella, uh, but Boca Chica looked and felt like the slight winner to me. How did you score it, Kieran? Would I be safe in assuming you agree completely with Steve Weisfeld? Uh, and what stood out to you in this fight? And where are you on Boca Chica's upside after this test? I did have it the same as Steve Weisfeld and was therefore correct. Um, 
But um, with absolutely no conviction at all, it would not have been hard to convince me of almost any number of alternative scores. Um, I agree with you. That was a very difficult fight to score. Um, I quite enjoyed it. I quite um, My expectations were high, but I think probably in hindsight, not quite as high as yours. So I did enjoy the quality of work on display. If I were to be critical, and I don't want to be critical of either guy because it was I thought it was a quality performance um, from both of them. Uh, I was expecting a little bit more in the way of, say, head and upper body movement from, from Reyes because that was mm. one of the things that impressed me the most when I was watching him on video. The fact that not only was he quite uh, uh, an aggressive guy, but that he did have that good movement in close. Um, but look, I, you know, I said Bokachika's key to victory was to keep Reyes at range and fire straight punches at him, and that's exactly what he did. And he didn't really allow Reyes to completely fight his fight fully. Um, the jab was really the key punch for Bokachika, everything sort of flowing off of that. Uh, that's something that I think Reyes is going to have to figure out how to neutralize, because with that frame... He is going to come up against a lot of opponents who are taller and rangier than him. Uh, and, and that's going to be his Achilles heel, I think, unless he yeah. can perfect the way to slide under the jab um, or out jab, you know, longer guys to work his way in. Um, as for Boca Chica, I legitimately have no idea what I feel about his prospects. Uh, we've seen him a couple of times. We've seen him win in two very different ways, which is very encouraging at this stage of a career. Right. He showed that he has very good boxing discipline to go with his undoubted KO power. He clearly is a prospect and probably a very good one. I just don't know how good a one he is yet. Uh, um, I'm fine in not rushing him up the ladder at all. I, I, I feel like he is the kind of guy who could really do with a couple more of these Gordon Hall specials on Showbox to really test him against different styles of fighter, and then we'll get a real real sense of, of, of who he is. Uh, so I, I don't really know. I, I will watch him again. I enjoy watching him, um, and not just because of his name and your joy at saying it. He's somebody <laughs> that I want to keep an eye on and see how he, how he does. I think with his amateur background, it suggests that he probably does have quite a good future ahead of him there's nothing that i go oh my god when i watch him but you know i want to watch him some more to see to see what he's got ahead of him um but yeah i just don't know exactly where to you know where to rank him or, or or how to rate him at this point yeah, and I'll just note that I think inexperience played a role here for Reyes, uh, that, you know, he'd been six rounds once, uh, and other than mm. that, he'd never been past four, and here he was going ten. It seemed like he had trouble pacing himself and got fatigued in the second half, and, and then kind of emptied the tank in round ten and had maybe his best round of the fight, but it was a little too late uh, at that point. Uh, and then the, the one other thing that uh, is worth uh, pointing out here is just that the trash talk, was fun and uh, and that's one upside of the empty arena being able to hear Boca Chica yeah. saying you know you feel my punches huh in the middle of the fight stuff like that was uh, kind of fun <laughs> yep. uh, on the undercard we had two fights that stylistically could not have been more dissimilar uh, super middleweight Vladimir Shiskin did what Vladimir Shiskin does he used his jab and his technical proficiency to win a workmanlike yeah, somewhat monotonous decision over Senna Agbeko uh, scores were 98 to 92 and two shutout scores of 100 to 90 and the lightweight bout that opened the show however it was bombs away with no defense from the very outset and we got a mild upset as abraham montoya took an eight round majority decision over previously unbeaten alejandro Porkchop guerrero scores were 76 76 79 73 and 
what is therefore um, by definition the correct score, Steve Weisfeld's score of 77-75. Uh, Eric, how did you have it? And was the entertainment value of Montoya Guerrero enough to more than offset the lack of entertainment provided in Shiskin Akbeko bout? So I had Montoya winning 79-73, the, the wide card. I thought it was a, a pretty darn clear win for him. So to me, even Weisfeld's card seemed a slight reach, but he, he's Steve Weisfeld. I'll let it slide. Exactly. 76-76 uh, from Glenn Feldman, though. I, I really couldn't see that at all. But at least the right guy won. The guy who threw a thousand punches in eight rounds. Uh, Montoya's experience and conditioning really saw him through. What a fun fight this was. Uh, yeah, I think it more than offsets the dull fight that followed. Montoya and Guerrero... Neither of them are going far. Uh, if we had hopes that Porkchop could be a real prospect, I think now we know he's at the club fighter level. Neither of these guys has enough head movement or, or defense in general to, to make it at the world-class level. Uh, I mean, there was a moment in round seven where Montoya uncorked the slowest, widest, sweeping <laughs> left hand you'll ever see. And Guerrero didn't move his head one bit. He didn't react. He just <laughs> let it land flush, even though he had all day to get out of the way. Uh, but it was a great all-offense style matchup. Montoya did a tremendous job going to the body consistently. I was entertained the whole way. A perfect way to start the show. Uh, and then came Shishkin Agbeko. And after a couple of rounds, I'd seen all that I needed to see. Agbeko, insane physique. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen pecs more ripped than that, but uh, as a boxer, he's fairly ordinary and just couldn't do much to get past Shishkin's jab. I mean, there's not much to say about this fight. Uh, the, the label of a poor man's bevel, it still applies. Uh, Shishkin, he is the one fighter on this card I could easily see winning a major title at some point. I think he yeah. has the highest upside, but yeah. something needs to change if he's going to become a TV attraction. Yep. All right, let's wrap up the Showbox discussion by each naming our star of the show. Uh, and we might have the same fighter here. Uh, I found this fairly easy. I'm giving it to Abraham Montoya, who won the most exciting fight on the card, scored an upset, and was really the only boxer that I felt you could say exceeded expectations. The other two winners, to me, were both fine, but uh, didn't exceed expectations. So I, I had an easy time giving this honor to Montoya. How about you? Yeah, well, I knew you were going to go first for this. And so just to break us out of our old married couple rut, <laughs> I figured I'll wait to see who you pick and then pick the other obvious guys. Of the three winners, I wasn't going to pick Shiskin. Um, I think the, the the case to be made here is the one for Montoya, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pick Boca Chica um, simply because, you know, he had that tough assignment. We did both. We were split on who was going to win that fight. I think we both legitimately thought it was going to be a very close and exciting fight. It wasn't as exciting as we thought it was, but it was a good challenge for him. A real challenge, probably the biggest challenge he's had so far, and he came through it. So totally get the case for Montoya. I'll go with Boca Chica just to be contrarian. All right. Well, if you're worried about us falling into that married couple rut, I give you a, a hall pass to go appear on someone else's podcast, get a little something out of your system. If you have to, it's fine with me. <laughs> Nah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, there's, there's nobody out there in podcast land I want to fool around with. <laughs> or maybe they don't want to Picking fool around some... with you. Well, they'll never get the opportunity. But let's move on. <laughs> yes, let's. 
This is going off into dangerous territory. Let's recap the picks competition scores, shall we? Uh, before we move on to other networks and other fights and whatnot. Uh, heading into this past week, Eric was leading 6-2. I closed that up to 6-4 after Showbox, as you picked Reyes to win. I picked Boca Chica by decision, although I said unanimous and it was majority. Um, we each earned three points for uh, Robert Easter's unanimous decision win over Ryan Martin. Uh, you got three to my one for Valine Brazil, as you said, unanimous decision, and I predicted a late stoppage. And we each got one point for Bruno beating Santiago because we were idiots, <laughs> and we thought that there'd be at least of the mythical Adrian Bruno there, and we both predicted knockouts, and it was a decision that he didn't deserve. So at the end of the day, no real movement. Uh, still a four-point lead for Eric, but now 13 points to nine for you. All right. Uh, and uh, before we finish our fight recaps by discussing Valdez Burchelt, let's break it up for a moment uh, with the tweet of the week. Uh, now, I have no intention of ever making one of my tweets or one of your tweets the tweet of the week. That would be a little too self-serving. However, I am willing to make a tweet sent to us the tweet of the week. Uh, so here it is from Robert Rowan. He tagged us and wrote on Wednesday night, Steve Farhood just dropped Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica without a trace of flair. Amateur. Uh, now, I, I have another tweet in the holster that I'd like to discuss in a moment, because this one probably won't generate much discussion. But but that is my tweet of the week. Robert Rowan <laughs> pulling a broner and saying F Steve Farhood, because right. Steve Steve apparently doesn't appreciate the opportunity to say Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica. Uh, Kieran, thoughts on that tweet from Robert? Oh, I always thought Farhood was a hack. <laughs> Boy, Steve's just take, taking a beating this week. <laughs> Isn't he? <laughs> oh, and he wrote us that, and he, and he sent us a lovely uh, thing for the mailbag the other day, too. So <laughs> right. that's not, it's not mean of us, actually. We love Steve. We do. Absolutely. All right. Um, so nothing further to say about that, I guess. Like I said, doesn't require a lot of analysis. But there is another tweet that I want to discuss. Um, it's my pick for worst tweet of the week. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if you saw this. On Saturday afternoon, Regis Progray tweeted, So I was just randomly thinking... And I hit some horrendous looking chicks in my lifetime. I at least got 30 bodies that wish I could just erase. Don't judge me. I wasn't always rich. We all been there, LOL. Then a facepalm emoji. Uh, I agree with the facepalm face emoji. Right. That oh, part fits. Uh, yeah, look, whether you do or don't regret some of the people you hooked up with in the past, uh, as much as I support freedom of speech and the right to show your personality on Twitter, this was ill-advised. Uh, at least... Rugaru didn't call any women out by name. I'll give him that, but uh, not, not a good look in my view. Any any comment on that, Kieran? Wow, I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. that uh, yeah, that's one of those things where you don't have to tweet every thought <laughs> pops into your head. Right, right. It's like I mean, I don't really drink anymore, but when I was drinking, I used to put my phone away before I was drinking mm, because smart. The next morning, you wake up and you're like, ah, crap. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah oh that's that's this i hadn't seen that that's that's yes face palm emoji definitely yes. face palm emoji he was definitely. right about that yes and it's it's not just the uh the ill-advised tweet as ill-advised as it was it's the fact that 
a day later it hasn't been deleted. Yeah, sometimes you have an ill-advised yeah, tweet, right. and then and then someone in your circle says, you know, that was a bad idea. Maybe take that down. Uh, either nobody has said that to Regis, yeah. or they said it and he ain't listening. But anyway, all right. Uh, there were other fights on Saturday besides just those on the home network uh, in London. David Avanesian stopped previously unbeaten Josh Kelly in six rounds. In Russia, Fedor Chudinov and Isaac Chalemba fought to a draw. In Argentina, Jonathan Barros beat Jorge Barrios. And my condolences to the blow-by-blow man who had to keep Barros and Barrios straight all night. Uh, But the big one, (laughs) the most anticipated fight of the weekend was the 130-pound showdown at the MGM Grand Bubble in Las Vegas. It was action-packed, and it ended in a minor upset as Oscar Valdez scored an early contender for knockout of the year when he flattened Miguel Burchelt as the bell rang to end the 10th round. Shades of Marquez Pacquiao 4 with Burchelt flat on his face. A scary scene. Uh, the most important thing to report is that as of our recording on Sunday, Burchelt has reportedly been released from the hospital. Seems to be okay. Uh, however, he had a rough night in the ring or maybe you'd just say Valdez had an exceptional night. Uh, he hurt Burchelt in the fourth, scored an official knockdown when the ropes held Burchelt up. Burchelt did come on in the sixth and seventh round, showed a lot of heart, but then Valdez dropped him again in the ninth before finishing it in the tenth. Uh, in terms of the flow of the fight, shades of Laura Warrington here it really mm. followed a similar mm. pattern. Uh, Kieran, how impressed were you with Valdez? Did you at any point think Burchelt was going to pull off the comeback? And do you think this will hold up as the knockout of the year? I was so impressed with Valdez. What a good fight. What an excellent game plan. Um, he went in there knowing what he had to do. He had uh, uh, sort of identified Burchelt's weaknesses. He had gone right for them. Eddie Reynoso is one hell of a trainer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he really is. Um, it's it's not just Canelo now. We're, we're seeing it with, with a lot of fighters. Like, what a good trainer he is. Um mentioned last week when we were talking about this that I said that the first time I saw Valdez he was much more of that boxer type and then he sort of segued into this Gatti-esque warrior he's become known for being and I think he, he to some extent he went back reached back to pull those tools out of his toolbox to use the, the Roy Jones analogy but <laughs> um, but he added so much more to it as well it wasn't just the boxing and the moving it was boxing and moving with real venom behind his punches when he did throw and really targeting him uh, uh, with with the left hands and the left hooks, especially. Uh, I thought he fought very close to a perfect fight against a very dangerous and favored opponent. I did see some talk uh, online afterwards about this being an upset of the year candidate. And I disagree strongly with that because I think that's a huge disservice to Valdez. He was yeah. an underdog um, and and. And rightly so, I think. But he was always very, very live. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's a highly accomplished fighter. Um, and while not on anything like that level in terms of upset, you know, you mentioned Lara Warrington. Also is a little bit Douglas Tyson-esque in terms of the boxer puncher completely neutralizing, beating up and stopping the favored puncher. Mm-hmm. And stopping him in the 10th round, even. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, complete with that brief period when it looked as if the favorite just might dig himself out of it. Uh, uh, and indeed... 
you know, in round six or seven, I did suddenly think, well, what the hell? You know, is Burchelt turning this around here? Um, that maybe Valdez had run out of steam, but even in those two rounds where it felt as if Burchelt was was coming on, the punches, there just wasn't the snap to them, was there? He, he just, it wasn't looking like the Miguel Burchelt of old, and it just looked as if, you know, maybe Valdez had, had just run out of gas, but it seems clear that he was just simply resetting because uh, then he came back out in round eight, grabbed the contest back by the scruff of the neck and, and didn't let go. Um, it's going to take some beating as knockout of the year, I think. I think for one thing, there's the level of the fight and the yeah. quality of the opponent and everything that was at stake. For another, there was the beautiful way that Valdez slipped two or three Burchelt punches Barely, basically didn't move his feet and just let Burchelt come onto him and bang and then landed the perfect shot. And then there was the concussive nature of the response. Burchelt out cold, just crumpling to the canvas. Very, very glad he's okay. He's a good dude, Miguel Burchelt. I like him. Um, but this was a beating. And I hope that Burchelt takes a good rest after this because this was yeah, the same thing that I said about Josh Warrington last week, uh, that he needed a rest after that Lara fight. Boy, Burchelt needs a needs a needs a rest. Um, this could have done him a lot of damage. This fight, uh, he he just took a shellacking there. Um, but an absolutely fantastic performance, I thought, from beginning to end from Valdez. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts? Anything you want to add there? And, and also, you know, where does Valdez? You know, everyone have been talking about Burchelt having the big fight and what would be next for him. Mm-hmm. Focus now on Valdez. What's what's next for him at one thirty? So I don't have a ton to add on the fight other than that it was damned exciting for a mostly yep. one-sided fight. Uh, although maybe it was a little bit less one-sided than the ESPN crew was suggesting early on. I thought that the first rounds were first three rounds were, were close and Burchelt probably won one of them. And, and they felt like they were only watching one guy in the ring. Although, as it turned out, they, they, they picked the right guy to watch. Um, so right. uh, round seven, I'll also single out figures to end up somewhere on the honorable mention list for round of the year. That was a really fun mm-hmm. one. It was just a tremendously entertaining edge of your seat fight, but also kind of a scary fight uh, and uh, yep. a beautiful scene afterward. Once once Burchelt was conscious yes. and up on his stool, uh, that embrace and exchange of words without us Agreed. knowing what the words were. Um, yeah, that was really powerful. Um, so where does Valdez fit in at 130? If I'm ranking them based on accomplishment in the division, he jumps right into the top two along with Gervonta Davis. Uh, well, that would be a hell of a fight, although boxing Oof. politics and Davis probably moving up in weight mean it's not likely to happen. Um, if Tank does move up, Valdez is the man to beat now in the division. Uh, there are a lot mm-hmm. of good fights for him. Uh, Jojo Diaz, Jamel Herring, eventually Chris Colbert. Um, but I'd favor Valdez over any of those guys off this performance. Uh I, I really didn't know he had this in him. You know, I, I think styles were part of it, certainly. It turned out a good style matchup for him. But also, he might just be the kind of fighter who fights up and down to his level of opposition. You know, mm. gets into some trouble against guys he should beat, but really ups his game against elite opponents. He certainly brought his A game on Saturday night. That was a beatdown, a, a, a brilliant show of timing and power. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was a busy week in terms of fights, but not so busy in terms of news. So let's breeze through the news segment very quickly. Uh, we're not actually even going to single out a main event this week. It is just an undercard. It's a new approach. 
Just a boxing. Absolutely no main event at all. Just undercards. Um, here's, here's the rundown. A uh, couple of notable postponements uh, in this year of ongoing postponements. Carl Frampton suffered a hand injury. Uh, hopefully there's nothing in a hotel lobby fell on it this time. <laughs> right. But uh, his fight with, with Jamel Herring is delayed again. Uh, Alexandria Povetkin and Dillian White 2 has been pushed back from March 6th to March 27th and moved to Gibraltar of all places due to COVID related travel restrictions. Uh, one notable fight announced and we'll have, uh, we do have a main event for the March 10th showbox. It will be Brandon Lee, always good value, hopefully getting a round or two uh, against Samuel Tier in what is scheduled for a 10 round welterweight bout. We'll see about that. Uh, anything to comment on there? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, at this point, I guess it's news when a week passes and Frampton Herring isn't delayed for some reason. Uh, and kind of, kind of the same with Povetkin White. I feel like they've been trying to get this rematch done for a while. Uh, I guess both of those fights will probably happen eventually. So not huge news that they're both delayed a bit. Uh, I do like Tia as an opponent for Lee. I think by a small margin, he's Brandon's best opponent yet. And Importantly, he's never been stopped. So I would think there's a chance Lee goes past the third round for the first time in his career. All right. Let's look ahead to this coming weekend. And there is no debate at all over what the main event of the week is. It might not be the best, the most competitive fight on the schedule for Saturday, February 27th, but it is far and away the biggest. In Miami, Florida, carried by zone, North American boxing's number one star. And in the opinion of these two here podcast hosts, boxing's current number one pound-for-pound fighter, Canelo Alvarez meets mandatory challenger Avni Yildirim at 168 pounds. Yildirim from Turkey is 21 and 2 with 12 KOs. He got stopped in three rounds by Chris Eubank Jr. in 2017. His most recent fight in 2019, he lost a split technical decision to Anthony Durrell. And therefore, naturally, he is an alphabet mandatory for the best fighter in the world. Uh, Eric, I assume you've checked the odds on this. How big of an underdog is Yildirim? And what can Canelo hope to accomplish in a fight like this, really? So I've seen a few different prices on the fight. Uh, one sports book has Canelo as a 50 to one favorite and Yildirim as a 14 to one underdog. Another sports book is taking no chances. They have Canelo at 100 to one with Yildirim at just 12 to one. Uh, so if you're going to bet this fight, you would be advised to do it at the first sports book, not the second. Um, <laughs> this might be the kind of fight you'd bet by picking a specific round for the KO or or a range of a couple of rounds and and just hoping to hit. Uh, Look, Yildirim, you mentioned his two losses. He has no particularly noteworthy wins. Uh, I guess Marco Antonio Paraban is his best victory. Uh, He he just doesn't belong in there with Canelo at all. This will last however long Canelo wants it to last. So what can Canelo hope to accomplish, you asked? Uh, Well, you know, he cashes a good paycheck for what should be an easy night's work. He stays busy. He basically gets to advertise himself in advance of his next fight, expected to be against Billy Joe Saunders in May. This won't add to his legacy in any way, but it's better than not fighting at all. Uh, He just needs to avoid cuts or injuries, put on a show for his fans. This kind of reminds me, this is kind of his version of Oscar against Patrick Charpentier in El Paso. It's, (laughs) it's, it's, It's the biggest star in North American boxing, getting the spotlight and the opponent basically acting as a prop uh and and why not you know canelo has every right to an easy night like what i expect this will be uh a few other noteworthy fights to run down this saturday the co-feature to canelo yildirim pits 
Julio Cesar Martinez against McWilliams Arroyo in a flyweight title fight on the same day, also on DAZN, all the way from New Zealand. Our buddy Joseph Parker takes a break from making social media videos to take on undefeated countryman <laughs> Junior Fa. And on Fox, while Avni Yildirim is fighting Canelo, the guy who officially beat him two years ago, Anthony Durrell, tries to bounce back from his loss to David Benavidez on Showtime in a bout against Kyrone Davis. Anything you're particularly looking forward to there, Kieran? Uh, Parker Farr, certainly, but as much because of our personal interest in Joseph Parker as for the fight's potential impact on the heavyweight division. It's mm-hmm. being greatly looked forward to in, in New Zealand, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest fights there. Uh, Martinez Arroyo is a perfectly good matchup. Um, Martinez is undefeated since his pro debut, uh, made a couple defenses of his title already, and Arroyo's a solid veteran. He went the distance for Chocolatito and, and then uh, fought Carlos Cuadras and back-to-back bouts, but they've been quite able to grasp the golden ring. Uh, as for the other one, what, 15-2 and two middleweight Kyrone Davis is doing in a super middleweight title eliminator? I don't know. Well, I do. Hashtag <laughs> yes. boxing. Yes. That's all i got to say about that. All right. If Yildirim should defeat Canelo, it would be one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. But it wouldn't be eligible for this week's top five list because it's taking place within U.S. borders. This week's top five list, as I assigned it last week to Eric, inspired by the recent anniversary of Buster Douglas against Mike Tyson, is a ranking of the all-time top five upsets outside the U.S., Douglas Tyson in Japan excluded. So, Eric, start the countdown. All right. Well, uh, what I struggled with most in compiling this list was trying to balance both the pure surprise of the upset, you know, what what the actual odds were for the underdog to win the fight with the magnitude of the fight. You know, when you say the phrase biggest upsets, it's how big odds wise is the upset, but also what reverberations does it cause? I tried to find fights that ticked both boxes, but uh, found it really challenging to rank them. Um, it was not, however, all that challenging to decide on what my top five would be in some order. Uh, I really only ever had nine contenders, and I quickly whittled off three of them, leaving me with a top six. You'll find out at the end which one just missed the cut. Uh, but here is my number five. September 24th, 1994, Wembley Arena in London, Not the heavyweight championship, but a heavyweight belt changed hands in shocking fashion when Lennox Lewis, then undefeated and awaiting a chance to prove himself against a Riddick Bowe or an Evander Holyfield or a George Foreman or a soon to be released from prison Mike Tyson, got upended just a few seconds into round two by unheralded Oliver McCall. Lennox, or I should say Lennox. I gotta yes. gotta gotta reprogram myself on that <laughs> yeah. one. Lennox was twenty-five and zero coming in. McCall, an ordinary twenty-four and five. He was known to be sturdy and a big puncher, but this was supposed to be easy work for Lennox. From what I found, McCall was a five-to-one underdog, uh, and he landed that right hand in the second round, and arguably with some help from a quick trigger referee. It was over just like that. This was a huge upset at the time and is an even bigger upset in retrospect because Mm. Lennox Lewis became one of the all-time greats and McCall was pretty close to a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Um, Without wanting to force out of your list, in my sort of list, there are a couple of people who have two or more candidates for this (laughs) list. Um, Lennox, maybe one of them. 
Yes. I wanting to get ahead of, of the rest of you, but uh, rest of your list. But um, for me, this fight is most notable for the fact that it was the thing that finally persuaded me to get HBO. Because as ah. I may have mentioned before, I was I was trying to watch the scrambled signal at the time with this fight and then i could sort of just see through the scramble and these were in the days kids when you could yeah. kind of quasi watch these things i was gonna say the there is a generation that doesn't know yeah, what a no idea what i'm talking about like, yeah. yeah but you could squint and maybe between the lines you could see what was going on and all i could tell all i knew was that i could sort of tell that it was no longer boxing and there was a movie and something dramatic must have happened <laughs> and um because this was of course pre-twitter and all these kind of things as well right. so um that is the most significant uh, uh impact that it had on boxing history is that it got me to um to subscribe to hbo but yes absolutely has to be on that list now that i understand the significant impact of it all i'm I, I'm, I'm bumping it up it's number one <laughs> uh all right uh i'll keep it at five though just uh, so as not to okay. reshuffle things too much uh, on the fly here uh number four the next on my list also had five to one odds from what i could find Although it happened such a long time ago that I'm not really sure if five to one then meant something different than five to one now. But my number four fight, uh, and a little spoiler here, the only non-heavyweight fight on my list, July 10th, 1951, at Earl's Court Arena in Kensington, UK, Randy Turpin. Then 40 wins, two losses, one draw, defeating the GOAT, Sugar Ray Robinson, for the middleweight title. Turpin was a very good fighter and a very awkward fighter, but Sugar Ray was Sugar Ray. He was 129, 1, and 2 at the time. He was undefeated in his previous 91 fights, uh, but he was partying his way across Europe between fights uh, in 1951, and he took Turpin lightly. Uh, and lost a 15-round decision that was just about unthinkable going in, even if, as with Tyson in Tokyo, there were some troubling signs in terms of Robinson's training. But even knowing that, nobody imagined he would actually lose. This was a massive upset. It was. This would be number one on my list. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, maybe betting did mean something. Maybe, I don't know. I'm surprised it would only be five to one. That does shock me and makes me think that maybe people did, like, as you suggest, approach things a little bit differently because, yeah, Turpin wasn't bad. Robinson struggled a little bit in the rematch too, actually. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was a tough fight until Robinson knocked him out. So, yeah, Randy Turpin was was a good, solid fighter. But like you said, Sugar Ray Robinson was Sugar Ray Robinson. Um, it was to Turpin's considerable advantage that he may well, Sugar Ray may well have entered the ring drunk, for all we know. He really was carousing his way around Europe. Uh, I think this was like his eighth stop or some eighth fight in a European tour or something to that mm-hmm. effect. But uh, a huge, huge uh, achievement for Andy Turpin. And uh, yeah, definite has to be on the list of in or out of the United States, I think has to be on one the list of some, one of the biggest upsets in history. All right. So that would have been higher. That would have been number one for you. It would. All right. My, my number three fight uh, also, I think, might be higher on some people's lists. It might be number one on a lot of people's lists, in fact. But it's downgraded slightly for me because I was one of a handful of people in the media who kind of saw it coming. Uh, Lennox Lewis makes his second appearance here. Uh, Lennox didn't lose often, but when he did, it was against guys he wasn't supposed to lose to. <laughs> this is, of course, April 22nd, 2001 in South Africa against Hasim Rahman. Lennox was as high as a 20 to 1 favorite. Uh, But I have to say, those were bad odds. I remember when it opened and you could get 12 to 1 or so on the other side on Rockman. I had a memorable conversation with a friend of my parents where 
we were just talking boxing and what's coming up. And I mentioned this fight and I said he should bet on Rockman. I'm not confident Rockman's going to win, but 12 to one, you know, he should be like five to one or six to one. That's a great price. And, uh, and that guy, every time I saw him after the fight, he would bring it up for years. You were right. You called it. I should have bet on Rockman. Uh, I wish I would have bet on Rockman uh, too. Uh, anyway, I, I'd followed Rockman closely. So I knew he was a live-ish dog even before it became clear Lennox had undertrained. Then once we found out he'd undertrained, a bunch of people jumped on the upset call here. Uh, he arrived late in South Africa, didn't take time to adjust to the altitude. Rockman did. Rockman was ready. It was yeah. still a huge upset when Rockman iced him with a right hand in round five, but an upset you could see coming. And that's why it's only number three on my list. But, you know, just based on the odds and based on what happened in the rematch, you can make a case for this at number one. But I've got it at number three. Yeah, I was not a member of the boxing media then, but I also do remember just from what I was reading and watching um, saying to folks, I think Rackman's going to beat him simply because Lennox was so obviously distracted by making movies and whatnot. Um, and if I recall correctly, he was even doing like some interview on an HBO broadcast like of just a couple of weeks beforehand. And maybe Lampley even asked him why he wasn't in South Africa already or something to that effect. Um, so, yes, but nonetheless, uh, a, a huge upset, especially when you see what, what Lennox did to him in, in the rematch. And notable, particularly for some of uh, Larry Merchant's outstanding lines Uh this was the crumble in the jungle, he called it. <laughs> and um, Lennox was drowning in Ocean's Eleven because that was the movie he was <laughs> right. off. He was off uh, filming. So, yeah, has to be on there, I think. OK, uh, my number two uh, was al also stars uh, someone from Ocean's Eleven. Uh, I hadn't made that connection <laughs> until just now uh, as I was uh, thinking about it and you mentioning uh, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, this was a lot more shocking to me than Rockman Lewis. I think for shock value, this might be my number one, but my number one beats this one by a mile in terms of magnitude. Anyway, yeah, let's not jump ahead to my number one yet. My number two took place in Hanover, Germany, March 8th, 2003. The next big thing in the heavyweight division, then 26-year-old Vladimir Klitschko, having easily beaten Chris Bird, Derek Jefferson, Franz Bota, Ray Mercer, and Jamil McCline, was the clear number one contender to Lennox Lewis until Corey Sanders, a 37-year-old fighter who'd been flirting with retirement, shockingly steamrolled Klitschko in two rounds. Yep. In retrospect, it made some sense. Vladimir was a bit chinny, and Sanders was a hard-hitting southpaw with a really fast left hand. He was a bit like a heavyweight Manny Pacquiao in terms of that straight left hand. So stylistically, he was just the right guy to knock out this version of Klitschko. But going in... It was not considered a possibility. This fight was a formality. Vladimir was a 20 to 1 favorite. This was just an absolutely stunning result. Yep, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't know at the time that Klitschko was chinny, uh, right? Uh, he, right. you know, we just knew that he was potentially this highly destructive guy. And like you said, Sanders was basically halfway out the door uh, when he pulled this off. Yeah, m massive, massive ups upset because uh, we all thought that Vladimir and Vitaly were going to just steamroller the opposition in the heavyweight division around this time. So, yep, no disagreement with that one being on the list at all. 
Okay. And now my number one, it's not quite as big of an upset on paper as those last two, but other than maybe Douglas Tyson, it's the most famous upset in heavyweight history. October 30th, 1974 in Kinshasa, Zaire, the invincible George Foreman, fresh off decimating Joe Frazier and Ken Norton in two rounds apiece, getting rope-a-doped by Muhammad Ali, who had split fights against both Frazier and Norton. That seemed to give us a sense of where he stood relative to Foreman. Uh, He was getting older. He just wasn't supposed to have a chance against George. Uh, As I mentioned on a recent podcast, people feared for Ali's health against Foreman. Yep. If anything, a lot of them hoped George would dispatch him quickly to minimize the damage. But we all know what happened. Uh, This is one fight I shouldn't need to give anyone the play-by-play of. Uh, My internet research tells me Foreman was a 7-to-1 favorite. Uh, the result, of course, was KO8 in Ali's favor. Definitely the biggest upset ever in Zaire. Uh, and uh, I'll go <laughs> ahead I'll go ahead and call it the biggest upset ever outside the U.S. other than Douglas Tyson. Yeah, was, this is number two on my list. Uh, or, you know, 1B mm-hmm. uh, with Chirpin with Robinson. Uh, there's not much really to say about it that hasn't already been said. Um, and, and you covered it all, really. Yeah, I think, you know, people forget just how seemingly unstoppable and invincible George Foreman was going into this fight. Um, But this was, you know, in many respects on one level, both Ali's finest hour and perhaps what, you know, sort of started his demise because then he realized that, hey, I can do this leaning against the ropes and let people wear themselves out by beating up on me thing for the rest of his career. Uh, But on this night, absolutely magical. Yeah, no, can't really question this at all. Uh, So uh, moving along to some of the ones that didn't quite make the cut for me, uh, my number six, the one I kind of wanted to put at number five and start the countdown with because it's cool to start a countdown with a fight from 1915, uh, Jess Willard over Jack Johnson for the heavyweight title in Havana, Cuba, a truly massive upset, but I can't quite include it in the top five because it's so widely believed to have been a fixed fight. That's what kept it out of my top five. Uh, Others that I jotted down but knew weren't quite top five material. George Foreman over Joe Frazier in Jamaica. People forget now what a big upset that was at the time. Uh, Ricky Hatton over Costa Zoo in Manchester. Certainly a stunner, uh, though Hatton was well regarded and Zoo had lost before. It was a big upset, not quite an all-time unthinkable upset. Uh, And John H. Stracy over Jose Napoles for the Mm -hmm. welterweight title in 1975 in Mexico City. A big upset for sure, but Napoles was 35, and this would prove to be his final fight. So not quite worthy of the top five. Uh, And the one other fight that I'll mention, the first thing I thought of when you suggested the topic was Lloyd Hunnigan over Donald Curry. A massive upset, totally worthy of the top five, except it took place in Atlantic City. Uh, <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought it was in the UK. In my mind, this was a fight that took place uh, in, in Britain, but uh, I was wrong about that. So uh, did, uh, did did I miss anything there, uh, Kieran? Any Anything else that uh, would have made your top five or come close? No, I had those two, the ones that you mentioned. Um, uh, on the level of the Hatton Zoo one, you could make a case for Joe Kalzaki, Jeff Lacey, and that Lacey was a very big favorite from the perspective of the U.S. audience. But in hindsight, it seems like so absurd that right. that Lacey was a big favorite that, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's difficult to put in that category. You could, oh, you could say Nigel Ben, Gerald McClellan, because... 
as Ben said in the aftermath of that fight, they just brought him over here to beat me up. Right. Um, but again, like, you know, Ben was a title holder himself. He was highly regarded. And, and, and so it's not so much of an upset. Um, Jeff Horn, Manny Pacquiao. Um, yeah. Jeff Horn probably didn't deserve to win that fight. <laughs> but yeah, that sort of seemed out of the blue. Mm-hmm. You could almost make a ca- I, I, I seem to recall before Tyson Fury fought Vladimir Klitschko that we talked about it on the HBO Boxing Podcast, and I seem to remember saying that Fury had basically no chance. And and and, and I don't know now we were with revisionist history. We know how good Tyson Fury is. I'm not sure that we really knew that going in. Um, and I think most of us thought Klitschko would win that fight, but I I. I don't know. Um, no, you know what? That's that's a really good one, and I it just completely slipped God. my mind. But um, he was a huge underdog. I'd have to look up the odds, but I, it might have been something like ten to one. I, I think you're absolutely. My recollection is that nobody really gave Fury a chance heading in, and I just kind of forgot it because how differently we view Fury now. But uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, I could. Uh, now that I'm now that you've mentioned that fight. It occurs to me that it should have gotten consideration for that five, six spot somewhere in that range. Um, one that wasn't a huge fight, and I don't know what kind of odds there were, but it was a big upset, and it threatened to derail a uh, what is now a Hall of Fame career. Chris John Juan Manuel Marquez. Yeah. Um, you know, Marquez had just come off the draw with Manny Pacquiao, his mm-hmm. first fight, didn't like the terms of the rematch, basically went to Indonesia for like hundred dollars and some pocket lint and lost to chris john and everyone thought well he screwed that up hasn't he um he ended up having the last laugh of course but not a huge fight but when you look at chris john's career and you look mm-hmm. at my marquez's career even as they stood right then it was definitely an upset i wasn't sure i put danny green roy jones and I wasn't sure about this because Roy had already started to lose right. fights and he wasn't Roy Jones anymore. But he only lost to like Glenn Johnson and Antonio Tarver and Joe Calzaghe. He hadn't lost to anyone like Danny Green. He hadn't been blown out in a round either. Uh, that was like the fight that on a way and way was a bit of an upset because it really showed us just how bad Roy was now. Um, and one that is a bit of a modern thing. It was a bit of a shock at the time. It doesn't really fit into the whole, like, uh, it's nothing like Ali Foreman-esque or, or really on the scale of anything we have in the list. But a little minor uh, upset was Jezreel Corrales against Takashi Uchiyama a couple of years ago. Uchiyama had been champion for like seven, eight years. Um, and Corrales went in there and knocked him out uh, and then beat him again in a rematch. That was considered a bit of an upset, but that's a much more of a kind of hardcore fans upset than anything that's on the scale of, of, of what we've talked about, I think. Yeah, I'm realizing now there were a, a few I missed. Now, again, not that they would have cracked my top five, but that I didn't even think of. Right. I, I think jo- John Marquez, I forgot about, that was worthy of consideration. And, and Green and Jones, especially the fact that I believe it was a KO1, uh, that it was, makes exactly. it that much more more shocking so yeah those, those are good ones oh and uh uh one thing uh that i ought to add uh is that uh someone sent a suggestion uh, usually we get them after we've revealed the list but uh we got one here from uh christian willie k tweeted to us biggest upset in australian history anthony mundine getting ktfo by garth wood um i'm sure it was a huge upset it didn't mean much outside australia and right I would say that once you've been knocked out by one punch from Sven Atke, (laughs) no no defeat you suffer can qualify as an all-time upset. So that's why I'm uh, striking that one from consideration. 
It's so funny. I almost put Aki Mundine in there, not because it was a shock that Sven Aki beat Anthony Mundine, but then right. he knocked him out. Yeah. Like, him clean out. Yep. Aki. Um, it was almost almost worthy of that. But um, yeah, that was a bit more of a fun list. Like when I proposed it, I was a little worried that it was going to be too easy and and simple. But I think. I think, yeah, I think there are a few that really separate themselves from the pack, but it was also kind of fun to try to actually remind ourselves of some of these other fights that have taken place yep. uh, around yep. the world. So. Not, a, not a bad assignment at all. I enjoyed it. It'll do. Good. That's that's the important thing, Eric. That's what it's all about. It's all about enjoying ourselves, isn't it? <laughs> no. No, it's all about the paycheck. Well, yes, that's true, which helps helps us enjoy ourselves. Right. All right, um, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, for which we do receive a paycheck, we hasten to point out. Um, we will be back next week to give our analysis of the Canelo fight and also to begin previewing Showtime's March fight card. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe. Be Yes, Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I feel it in my I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. 